I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. Here's a quick preamble to this fantastic episode. Kevin has graciously extended an opportunity to watch one episode of season six of the hit show, From the Wild. Simply use coupon code SILVERCORE when checking out, but hurry because it's first come, first serve until quantities run out. If you want to watch the entire series for free, check out our social media or website for more details. Today I'm joined by Kevin Coswin and Chef Paul Rogelski. Kevin is a filmmaker, cinematographer, and creator of the two-time James Beard Award-nominated series, From the Wild. Kevin also offers foraging walks and field cookery camps at his From the Wild base camp, which is about 100 kilometers north of Edmonton. Chef Paul Rogelski is a co-owner and chief culinary officer at Calgary's acclaimed Rouge Restaurant. The restaurant has achieved the prestigious ranking as one of San Pellegrino's 50 best restaurants in the world. Together, Paul and Kevin have created the show Wild Harvest with Survivor Man Les Stroud, where they forage, cook, and celebrate Canada's wild foods. Kevin, Paul, welcome to the Silvercore Podcast. Thanks for having us. You know, Kevin, it was, it was kind of funny, a little serendipitous, I guess, but recently I was talking with Hank Shaw and oh, we were talking really? about his new book, Hook, Line and Supper. Right and out of the blue, without any knowledge that we were scheduled to speak, Hank talks about cooking trout or as his Canadian friend, Kevin Kossowin pronounces it, trout. Yep. <laughs> Good old Hank. <laughs> Good old Hank. I didn't know if that's a, a Hankism or, or what, but I thought uh, it was yeah. kind of funny. Yeah. He likes to, he likes to poke fun at us Canadians and, uh, basically, you know, any linguistics kind of fun about accents and the way we say things. One of the things that Hank pokes fun at me about is, um, is calling, uh, the forest or the woods, the bush. So when I say, That's we're, what go- it's called. we're going to the bush, he said, are you the singular bush? The only one, that one bush, you're going to that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good Hankism. Yeah, Hank's been on From the Wild a couple times, actually. We've been uh, trout fishing, foraging, grouse hunting, waterfowl hunting, actually. So we've done quite a few things. And I met Hank Shaw online. He was one of the, when I first started writing about food on the internet, back when that was a thing a million years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Hank was one of the first commenters um, on my blog. And so uh, it's funny to see him now, you know, having started his own and then it become a gigantic thing and him having an entirely new career because he was a political journalist back when I first met him. That's right. Yeah. Funny background, but weren't you an accountant by trade before getting into (laughs) what you do now? No, I wasn't an accountant. (laughs) I was in finance. I have a, I have a commerce degree and a finance major and I worked in finance for 14 years. So yeah, uh, we, there's a number of us creatives in the world of food that have, you know, business backgrounds or some type of other training and end up here because it's a creative space that offers a lot. Well, what brought you here? Uh, whoa. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure we have enough time for that today. Um, really just a deep dive into the world of food. Uh, I, I guess I hated my career, so I was uh, spending a lot of time doing anything else that interested me. And one of those things was uh, food. And I'd done some travel uh, in Europe a fair bit and kind of um, was exploring their regional cuisines, kind of you know, from, from region to region and it it intrigued the heck out of me and came back to to Alberta and, uh, really wanted to dig into, well, what, what do we have here? What are the, what are the farms that are doing the best jobs? Who are the local food artisans? What are, what are the things that make this place special? And honestly, that was like a half decade to decade long search. And, uh, in, I guess kind of plopped me why we're doing, so much wild food production is one of the things I found that speaks the most to place and time in the world of food is actually getting outside, outside the world of agriculture and greenhouses and control and let, and, and interfacing with nature and then seeing what uh, exists in that exact spot at that exact time when it comes to food. And, 
And that's where uh, I've, my career has kind of led me is to exploring those moments and exploring those foods. Well, how did you and Paul, how did you guys meet each other and come up with this idea for, for wild harvest? Uh, Kevin, <laughs> do you want to go run with that one or, or do no, you want go to ahead. take this one? Yeah, go <laughs> ahead. Uh, Kevin and I met a few years ago, uh, just because, you know, Kevin's love and passion for the world of food, uh, he found himself working on a lot of local projects, uh, meeting chefs, working with chefs. And, uh, we worked on one with a, a lot of chefs, um, a few that were visiting from Europe and some local chefs called, uh, cook it raw. And mm. Kevin was capturing and, and uh, really documenting every moment of that event. Um, so it was the first time for us really to work closely with each other. And uh, I can tell you one, one special thing about Kevin is Kevin just has this ability to put everyone at ease around him. And uh, I, I thought, man, this guy's, this guy's got some chops, but he's also just a really great person. So um, we kind of kept in contact since that project. And, um, Kevin and I also did uh, a project, just a mini project together where, uh, we took people foraging in the field. Um, Kevin captured a promotional video and produced it, uh, for the restaurant to use. And, um, and that was a project spearheaded by Travel Alberta, actually. A few years ago, there was kind of a progressive movement in the culinary tourism space in Alberta to um, to, to do that, to tap into the, the interesting kind of foraging stuff that was happening in the province and pairing foragers with uh, chefs, right, Paul? That was kind of what, yeah. that's, what, what was prompted. Since then, that's kind of fizzled, and we've entered a pandemic when culinary tourism isn't a thing at all anyway. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's how we bumped into each other. And Paul, then why don't you fly into, how did you, how did we get into the show? How did we start Wild Harvest? <laughs> this is a good, uh, th this might take a little bit of time. Uh, I'll try to be as brief as possible. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I was flying in from PEI where I was um, part of an event called Forage, which was a symposium made up of a, a lot of different chefs from across the country. And, uh, I was just flying into Calgary. I had, you know, done the, the thing that you're not supposed to do, but I turned my cell phone on before we landed. And, uh, <laughs> first message that popped up was a text from Les saying, Hey, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm in Calgary. I've, I've got a four hour layover at the airport. If you want to come meet me for a beer, that'd be great. So of course, I'm like, dude, this is insane. I, I'm literally wheels down. I'm on the tarmac. Just let me get my luggage and I'll meet you. So we, we touched base. Um, and I, I've known Les for quite a few years. We met initially on a project uh, where we were both filming down in Mexico. And, and the idea of a television series um, kind of like this one, we're, we're you know, in the air. Um, anyways, so Les and I had had talked about it again, just catching up a little bit. Um, and then a couple of months later, he reached out again and said, Hey, I'm coming to Alberta. And I said, you know what, if you're coming to Alberta, there's one person I want you to meet. So knowing that Kevin, um, is very, um, good in the same sort of, uh, space as Les when it comes to bushcraft and, and, uh, filming, and producing beautiful final products, plus Kevin's a musician and Les is a musician. I thought they should meet. And mm -hmm. we had uh, one little um, FaceTime meeting where I, I thought, you know, it would be kind of fun uh, to, to get the conversation going. Um, initially, I thought, you know, it'd be great if they worked on a project together with me not being in the project. Uh, mm. But that augmented in a, a short period of time to what is now, you know, uh, 21 in front of, of 4 billion people, Paul. That's what it <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, that's our yeah, potential audience right now. So it's, it's crazy how things wow. um, unfolded and, and where we're at. 20, 21 episodes in the can currently. Wow. Well, have you been in front of the camera before, Paul? A little bit here and there. Nothing, uh, nothing major. Uh, my experience would be more dealing with live audiences 
uh, taking the stage at trade shows, that type thing. Uh, a little bit of filming uh, with Michael Smith from the Food Network. He's he's a close buddy of mine. And uh, yeah, so th- this is a new for me. Very, very new. So I've, I've been able to watch a few of the episodes that have come out and you're on the beach and, and Les is doing some foraging and pointing things out to you. Do you have a foraging background yourself, Paul, or is this kind of new to you? <laughs> uh, or is it- the answer is I, I've always been interested in foraging um, and I've been basically camping my, my entire life. And there's things that I've noticed, you know, oh, those are wild chives. So I've taken wild chives or rose hips, but just real simple stuff. Uh, mm. Where I am at now is um, really in this steep learning curve of what is edible um, beyond my imagination, to be honest. And uh, to, to be in the field and, and have this opportunity to learn about wild foraged ingredients uh, with Kevin and Les is probably one of the greatest things that I, I have going in my life right now. Right. Well, you know, I've, I've got a background fishing and hunting and to me, foraging just wasn't even on the radar. And my wife is a chef by trade and she loves to garden. She was into foraging. I'm like, that that's her thing. Fair enough. And it wasn't until actually going out with Hank and he took us on a, on a foraging walk down in uh, California there. And pointing out the abundance of wild edible food that's everywhere and learning from his approach. I was hooked. I love it. And I love watching your guys' show because you're learning some great stuff and you guys, you also have your recipes. You post them on the website so anyone else can go out. It's kind of like a, it seems like a bit of a black box challenge for you, Paul. Here's here's some surprise edibles. you can eat it. You won't die. Go make something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because it's <laughs> been very much that way for me. Um, not only figuring out the new ingredients, but uh, as Kevin will tell you, camera's rolling as I do it. And uh, the, the kitchen changes for me all the time as well. So whether I'm cooking in uh, an outdoor situation where, you know, it's live fuel, fire, um, it, of course, right at the magic moment where I need heat, the fire dies. Of so that's, that's yeah, one of those things to, to work around. But we've um, been able to film in various other kitchens as well. And each kitchen is a little bit unique. So it's not just the challenge of the ingredients. It's the challenge of knowing how hot the stove I'm working on is. Is my Coleman filled with propane? How hot is the fire? Is my charcoal ready? There, there's a lot of these elements that uh, I can say kind of add to the, the, the color and the, the heat of the episode. Man, but you're sure up for the challenge. That's for sure. Yeah. And his track record's nuts. Uh, Les and I both, you know, thought, well, he's going to get it wrong at least, you know, a good portion of the time and he can't knock it out of the park all the time. And, um, I think his batting average is extremely high. I think there's been two dishes in 20 episodes that Les was like, mm, I think he maybe could have done better on this one. But other than that, there's been, he's been just killing it. Wow. Well, Kevin, is that you behind the camera for most or all of it? Are you doing most of the video work there? Uh, yeah. If it's not less behind the camera, it's me. It's fantastic. The cinematography and then the, the pairing with the audio and the sounds, I don't know what you call it, folly or foley or whatever. Um, it, it's a really good job. Um, thanks. One thing I that I thought was interesting was, um, you use the camera and you use your skills to not promote the Kevin brand. You use it to work with others. And I think you actually at one point came out and you said that your goal is to foster collaboration and innovation and industry development. That's pretty cool. Not, you don't see that a lot. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, whether I was actually, it was a kind of a steady conversation real early on is do I end up as an on-camera character and, and I really didn't need it. Um, but the fun part that I get to play, uh, that I think is probably really unique and no one would really understand <laughs> is, uh, I get to go in the field with Stroud and, and look for things and he and I both forage. So we both know a lot about plants and then I get to kind of play in that space. 
And then uh, when it's time for Paul to jump in the kitchen and he and I are talking menu and ingredients and tasting stuff and figuring out, okay, where do we take this? How do we make this fit for the show? I guess, I mean, the show really is, is obviously a priority, but really, it really is. We're trying to make, we're trying to make a dish that less will enjoy because that fundamentally that's what the camera is being pointed at. So it's been a fun challenge. I get to, I get to kind of play in both of those spaces without having my face on camera, which is just fine by me. I've never been the kind of you know, obsessive about having to be on camera. <laughs> I have to elaborate a little bit. So um, I'm very lucky that Kevin is an accomplished uh, cook as well. And uh, his palate is also very similar to mine. So where, where I feel for Kevin is he has to deal with me as I work through dishes creatively, where it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I got this idea. And then Kevin will be like, okay, start working on the camera angles around that. And then I change it 15 times. And then at the very, very last second, camera's rolling. I'm like, whoa, hang on. <laughs> one, one last little detailer, five. Uh, two artists working together, I tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the, there is a lot of uh, hunting shows and foraging shows and, and, and cooking shows out there, but you guys take a, a perspective that is rather unique, I think. You've, rather than have... You have a very cinematic field, how it's filmed, which is great. You, you guys are decked out head to toe and camouflage, and it's not about the process of, it's not about the actual acquisition of the food. The goal is not that, rather it's the full process and the respect for the food all the way through, which I find very refreshing at the very beginning, the work that goes in to get it, the respect for how you care for it and prepare it. And then the end result at the very end. Um, do you see many other shows out there that are kind of doing a similar thing or is this kind of trying to break new ground here? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I hope my, you're asking two guys that don't watch a lot of TV. Yeah. I, I hear you. <laughs> I would say that, um, my entire career has been built around um, pushing the boundaries of what people are are used to seeing and or or um, kind of removing the filters that industry applies and broad that broadcast industry and the food industry apply to how we see food. So uh, for from the wild, that meant uh, yeah, we're showing you how uh, an animal's butchered mm. or gutted, which. Um, that that's changed over time, but from the wilds in season eight and in season one, meat eater wasn't on Netflix yet, or it was just about to be. And there was really no content, uh, in the, in that space of, of, uh, most hunting shows were the grab the antlers and show the rack and roll the credits. That mm -hmm. was hunting shows. Um, and, and we really, as someone who grew up hunting, wanted to expand that into, um, you know, all the stuff that happens after that. We, and in some episodes we actually do that. We just start rolling and there's not an animal on the ground already. And, and what happens after that is, is the show. Mm. And so that's not for everybody. I get that because the industry's built this interest in, 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 uh, 30 bucks and 30 minutes kind of thing. But when it comes to wild harvest, it's, it's not much different. It really is about approaching an ecosystem and half the time, and Paul can have my back on this one in season two, we went into the flying into shooting it and had no idea what we were going to do. Like two, three days prior, we just didn't know. And then you walk into the field and go, okay, well, what's, what's here? What can we do? Um, and then it really becomes very ingredient centric. And I think that's not when folks go looking for stuff, wild food things, whether you're hunting, fishing or foraging, they're usually looking for like a trophy, like a morel or a, a whitetail buck or a trout or something. Mm -hmm. And I think this really embraces the, the trophy is the stuff that's on offer by nature and you don't, and on your, uh, being able to use your skill set and your knowledge to just roll with whatever happens to be on offer and make something delicious out of it. And that's what wild harvest is entirely about is just wheeling into an ecosystem seeing what's there and then making as beautiful and tasty a plate as we can. And so those two shows are, are highly aligned in that, on that front. What are some of the areas that you've been dropped into that have been the hardest to harvest wild food in? Paul, any thoughts? Uh, 
Okay, I'll, I'll spit out one. Think about this, Paul. One of them was actually shooting um, the muscle scene in in Oregon because we were on the coast, and that's the first time in my entire career that I almost lost my A cam and all of our cards in in it falling into the ocean because the rogue waves were coming and pounding us on that yeah. on that scene, and so that was tough. Uh, the desert, maybe, Paul. That was pretty tough too, in in some ways. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's interesting because there there's challenges of of course, where you're harvesting from. But then there's things that uh, also come into play, which would be heat, as an example, just being out and, and getting beaten by the sun or filming in the sun and, uh, you know, hydration, just some of those basic things. I, I think some of the harvest items that um, I have found to, to be difficult would be uh, something like, beaked hazelnut where cracking and just trying to get enough meat out of a, a green nut. Um, you know, it's like, okay, let's dedicate a bunch of time to this one. The actual harvesting of it wasn't so bad, but, but the processing of it definitely took some time. Uh, and I think we're kind of lucky because a lot of the, I'll say this from my, my side of things, but when it comes to difficult harvests, less is the guy that actually is, uh, been getting in and getting dirty and getting cold and you know trying to dig out rhizomes with a pickaxe out of yeah, gravel. Like pond, pond lily. Yes. Yeah. yeah, pond lily tuber. Pond lily tubers out of the bottom of like a lake. And then uh, another one was actually arrowleaf balsam root we did recently in the Okanagan. Uh, beautiful plant, really hard to work with in the kitchen, um, but required a bunch of digging and some rock and stuff. So I don't know. There's it's it's interesting there. Uh, there's such a wide variety. It's kind of hard to hard to choose what might have been a, a challenging one. They're all kind of challenging. Even like maybe making maple syrups no easy task. That's it. Takes forever. Yeah. yeah. Well, those those rhizomes. That was from the uh, the cattails, right? Yeah, that's right. How were they? I've never tasted those before. They how do they taste? Not like anything, to be honest. Um, once they were processed, they really just came. Uh, to light that they were a starch and used as a starch. So as a, a flour additive or um, a sauce thickening agent, uh, we we had a chance to, and this is what I really value about the show. Kevin and I spend hours in the kitchen just learning about stuff. It's like, okay, experiment number one. I've never seen this before. Let's, let's see how this, um, in the case of the cattail rhizome, how it works in a slurry environment. How does it work once we dehydrate it and powder it and, and really play around with it? But it, in that case in particular, it was so neutral. It, you could add it to anything and wouldn't even know that it was there. Kind of like really. cornstarch, yeah, if you had to compare it to something. Is that fair, Paul? Yeah, I think that Kinda? would be... Yeah, or rice flour maybe. Okay. Somewhere in between the two of them. Uh, the, the one thing that I remember being one of the surprising things to work with was pond lily tuber, which is kind of pulled out the same way that you pull out a, a cattail rhizome. And I know Kevin referred to it a, a little bit earlier. A uh, little hard to harvest. And oh man, it's not tasty at all. It, it's, it, it's the opposite of cattail rhizome, which is user-friendly. This stuff tasted like uh, open sewer and smelt like an open sewer on a hot day. I, I can't even describe it. <laughs> you know, I think and, that's a good description. <laughs> yeah. And, and despite that, I think the crazy part is despite that you figured out a way to use it in a dish that actually made a lot of sense and where it was kind of interesting. Uh, Cause this is, this, the show certainly isn't about shock and awe and look how disgusting a wild ingredient we can, use, we can put into something nice. It's actually quite the opposite. We're looking for nice stuff as often as we can, but uh, even that ended up kind of taking the place of kind of had an MSG kind of note. It really yeah. performed a salinity kind of function in a dish, which is was really unexpected. So kind of like Paul mentioned, uh, some of the biggest rewards on the project have been the opportunity to learn and take the time and have, you know, weeks in the field in production to actually learn about these things and and dig in in ways that you would never would casually at home. So kind of a, a luxury that way being on the, on the project. Well, how long does it usually take to film a typical episode? Two days. Okay. You just They're drop quick. in. What's that? They're quick. It's a day we sh we allocate a day to uh, me filming less foraging for the ingredients, so finding the ingredients and and getting them in in hand, and then uh, we usually let at the end of that day let Paul know what's up, 
and uh, and show him the ingredients. And then the the next morning, it really is Paul's getting the kitchen, whatever his cooking space is ready. And then we film kind of like a midday meal and then kind of a dinner meal. And then that's and that's the show. So oh. it's uh, it's actually tremendously quick to produce. Um, one of the advantages of actually having three guys who are really good at at um, f- rolling with it and creating on the fly. And another advantage of having a show that's not highly contrived and highly designed. Um, mm. It really is flexible to whatever is happening, including the weather, including whatever. That's just the nature of, you know, going outside and things happen. And, and yeah, so that's really, really lucky in that respect. So, Paul, if I wanted to go out and do a little foraging and uh, cook up a meal and I didn't quite know where I was going to go or what I was going to find, uh, what sort of things, what sort of advice would you give me and what sort of, uh, uh, equipment should I be bringing with myself to hopefully be as successful as possible? Uh, what I think is, uh, brilliant to me is you don't actually have to go far. Uh, I, I think there, the notion that I had before this project was, oh, have to get deep into the woods. And that's not the case at all. So you can go into your backyard. You can go into the alley if you can find a place that, you know, maybe a little bit sheltered from some debris and, and pesticides and, and that sort of thing. So you can really harvest anywhere. Uh, as far as tools go, I think overall, I always bring a nice small knife with me. So something that uh, I I can cut with uh, a pair of scissors and uh, I don't have one yet, but Les is in the process of developing, it's called a hookah? No. A hori hori. A hori hori, that's it, yeah. A hori hori, which is like this heavy duty uh, blade on one side that, that kind of is like a cross between a, a garden spade, like a little garden shovel and a knife. And that, oh, cool. Yeah. That thing is unbelievable. Uh, I can tell you if you used it just once, you're going to want to buy one. I can oh, jump in here too. For I that one. say that the, uh, the one thing yeah. that I think pe- we both, we lack in the field and that, uh, people, when I take people out into the field to teach them about foraging, it's simple stuff like bags, like you need to put stuff in things, in mm. something. And uh, in some cases, uh, and it's, di- it's difficult because it's a moving target. In some cases, it might be crayfish in the creek that you found. Well, that needs something that can handle that. That's a bit wet and might give them some oxygen. And in some cases, it's like little tiny things that you might need a little bowl or a little bag. In some cases, it's gigantic amounts of, you know, nettle or cow parsnip or fireweed where you have like bouquets of it, of big bunches of things. So it's a bit of that, that moving target makes it a bit tricky to kind of advise people what to bring. Mm. Uh, but you definitely need things to put stuff in. Because when you do find stuff, you find a lot. Like when I go for mushrooms, I fill my vehicle multiple times. So I need lots of baskets. <laughs> Not <laughs> I one. love it. So I really liked... The episode, obviously, I, on From the Wild, watching Hank Shaw, because I know Hank, and oh, yeah. had a good laugh at how much he complained about being cold and tired. <laughs> <laughs> and what I thought was interesting, Kevin, is that you say that you are a preacher in defense of uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. That there's a value to being uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, you still feel that way? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a film called Wally that I thought was one of the most genius films ever created. And in this little animated film, uh, humans are relegated to sitting in homeostasis and you can watch the movie and figure out what that means. But, um, I, I honestly feel like you're not, I don't live my best life, uh, sitting on my couch. That's not when I'm experiencing building memories and learning and becoming better connected with my planet or my friends or whatever. So I, I, I quite embrace the destruction of homeostasis and reminding yourself that you're alive and um, reminding yourself that you're a hot-blooded creature that is capable of doing things. I think that that feels good intrinsically, but it's also good for your body. It's good for your brain. Uh, so yeah, it's funny. Uh, we put Hank in some pretty... Um, some situations he's not used to, let's just put it that way. I think, I think there's a bit of a difference between going to and go, uh, going to, I guess, 
guided guided lodge kind of scenarios, you know, in that's sure. pretty common in the US. And then us crazy Canadians who are like, let's walk 10 miles into the bush <laughs> up a river <laughs> where there's nobody and nothing and sleep under a tarp on, in a thunderstorm. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that we put Hank through that is a bit bad on me, but in some ways I feel, I feel fine about it because really we all need a bit of a kick in the butt the odd time that we're more capable than we think of and we can, we're more resilient than we, we feel we are. And sometimes we're just not as prepared as we should be. So mm. that means everything from the kinds of things that Les Stroud has spent a lot of his career teaching people about, uh, to just basics around clothing and backcountry equipment, uh, which doesn't need to be a lot, but it needs to be something so that you know, uh, you know how to how to take care of yourself outside. Well, Kevin, you take a lot of people out and teach them about foraging, and you introduce them to living off the land, you introduce them to hunting and fishing. And I think at one point you said a few years back, you made the very conscious decision to start a new hunter on small game, like grouse, as mm -hmm. opposed to starting them on big game. And I think that's a very wise decision, but I'm wondering, is there a story behind why you say you made that very conscious decision? Yeah, because I'm an idiot. And, um, early on <laughs> when we were producing from the wild, we just, you know, any, any friend that expressed interest in hunting, we thought, oh yeah, we'll take them out. Like, what do you want to go for? And they would, um, well, you know, kind of naively and genuinely, we just want people to have a fun time and what would interest you. Mm. Uh, the, the problem is, is that optically, uh, they'd watch a series and be like, I want to go after black bears which mm. was really common and big game or a moose or they want to hunt grizzly bears or wolves or whatever. It's just funny what people kind of feel like they can do right off the get go. Sure. So we actually introduced a lot of, uh, first time hunters into, into bear hunting in the spring. Uh, and while it's doable, I just don't think it's a, it was the, the after having done it for two, three years, I realized, man, this is a mistake. Mm. Um, the skill set, the skill set that you need, uh, to hunt a black bear is, is in the advanced level, uh, for a variety of reasons, including that they can kill you. And, um, so there, there's that. And then, um, you know, have, having introduced some people to something as benign as walking the, the roads for grouse, uh, that seemed like a lot better place to start. Your life's a lot less at risk. There's a lot less that can go wrong. And mm. so, uh, I, I wish I had, uh, maybe thought of that little nugget of wisdom sooner, but yeah, I would advise anybody mentoring people in the world of hunting to, or fishing, like start, start small, start easy, start with the easy wins so that it's fun for people, uh, rather than bonk, like don't go on a mountain sheep hunt as your first hunting trip ever go for something a little, a little easier. Um, yeah. So that, I don't know, we learned kind of the hard way and, and make some mistakes. And one of the things about the show though, and I would say wild harvest is the same is we're not, not afraid to make mistakes on camera, not afraid mm. to have lived through some of our learning on camera, uh, and to be better people and better outdoorsmen, uh, you know, a few shows down the road than we started. There's no shame in that, in my opinion. I like that. Now, Paul, I, I know you've talked about overlooked or hated type of wild foods that are often treated like weeds or sprayed with chemicals or destroyed because it's interfering with crops and that are commercially growing, uh, once people start to really, they watch wild harvest and they start embracing what they can actually find. And like you say, you can go in your back alley, you can, you can forage on the sidewalk really, if you, if you know what to look for, uh, as a chef, what would be some of your favorite wild foraged foods that, uh, you would like to cook with? Oh, that is, um, that's a good question. Yeah, because there's so many. And, and I think the past, um, year of my in education, when it comes to forged ingredients, uh, I can say that almost everything that, uh, we have brought in from, from the wild has been delicious and it all has a place um, there's definitely some considerations which would be based on volume and some things are, are definitely easier to, to get uh, a, a large volume of product without damaging the environment. Uh, fireweed would be one of those things, uh, especially this time of year. Uh, 
and, and that's the big thing. You don't want to go out and harvest and, and damage the environment, which uh, I, I think fundamentally changes how I think of the ingredients. Uh, mm-hmm. As an example, something like uh, a delicate, beautiful little flower called Spring Beauty is, is delicious. I wish I had buckets full, but that's not the way they grow. So mm-hmm. it's, it's capitalizing on things that do have volume attached to them and, and serving them in a, a way that I, I can showcase the abundance or um, really dialing it down and having things that are more dear uh, in the way they grow and uh, challenged in the way they grow and, and really tell that story on a plate as well. Uh, and aside from that, really the, the big thing that I've learned is a lot of the elements um, when it comes to flavor uh, that wild ingredients present are very similar to what you have in commercialized uh, production of, of produce. Uh, there's some, some ingredients that are bitter. There's some that are sweet. And uh, it, it's really, as a skill set, uh, working with wild ingredients, it, it's no different than working with uh, typical ingredients that you could buy in a supermarket. One of your mm-hmm. favorites, Paul, I'm going to interject, uh, I know is milkweed. And that's a great example of what you're talking about, where it's a plant you have to go easy on uh, for a variety of sustainability reasons uh, surrounding the monarch butterfly and other things. But uh, holy heck, is that a delicious piece of green yeah. vegetable, right? But like, and yeah. again, to your point, it tastes a lot like you would expect of a delicious green vegetable. It's not going to challenge people's understanding of food um cattail also with its cu- kind of cucumbery spicy notes um really familiar it's not much of a reach uh, for your palate and i wouldn't say many of the ingredients we have spring beauty the little little tubers below it taste like pota- like shockingly like potatoes so they're not again just not not as it's not as weird as you think whenever people think oh wild food oh that's weird or oh forage that's weird i think yeah blueberries raspberries strawberries there's lots of things that we know in the world of food in agriculture that are from the wild and that and they're not weird it's not nearly as bizarre as you think yeah and then there's rock tripe so there's some weird <laughs> things <laughs> yeah rock tripe is a yeah that, that, that was a challenge well, I really like the fact that you guys uh, emphasize ethical harvesting. You're not just going out there wiping out a full patch and you're drawing the connection to how this is a food source and an important part of the biology and the, the makeup for other animals. Like you're just saying they're the monarch butterfly. I, I got to imagine that putting a show out like wild harvest is going to have a, a two-pronged approach of number one, educating people, but it's also going to encourage people to get out there and start foraging. Have, have you noticed, and like, particularly with COVID, I've been finding there's more and more interest, people talking to me about hunting and foraging and fishing and being self-sufficient. Have, have you guys noticed there's a marked increase in the demand for this kind of knowledge? And also, have you noticed that you're, maybe some of your favorite spots are starting to get wiped out because of new people getting into it. Well, I'd say last year I noticed a big bump up. We started seeing like trailer, you know, uh, campgrounds that didn't exist before in the, on crown land in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Uh, and that be, that was quite common, but, um, I'd say this year we're finding the complete opposite. Why? I don't know. It's like people burned out on that and like, Oh, maybe this isn't so bad and I don't have to be so smart and so self-sufficient. Um, mm. but yeah, I, I, I have a few opinions on this. Um, and we've again covered a lot of this on camera, but uh, I'm personally of the opinion, and I know Les is largely philosophically aligned, and Paul probably too, that uh, our objective is to introduce people to these species so that they actually care about them, and in so doing, in caring about them and knowing about them, might care a little more about how we do our forestry or how we do some of our other resource extraction. Um, for example, uh, uh, boy uh chaga is a perfect example i've been i had my hand slapped on social media for pictures of harvesting chaga and people like to really talk about the sustainability of chaga harvest and chaga is a fungus uh kind of like a coffee tasting delicious good for you antioxidant fungus it's really really great i love Mm -hmm. it we use it at home but my my knee-jerk reaction to that is 
when you used your paper towel today or your toilet paper, did you discuss with it the sustainability of the chaga harvest and the clear cuts that generated those paper products or the ones that we shipped, shipped, shipped to China or somewhere else? Mm. Uh, we don't, we don't think about sustainability. You know, people get pretty fussy about sustainability with foraging, but then we just completely like mow the boreal forest or, or any other ecosystem or completely destroy the grasslands ecosystem with agriculture and fence lines and such, and don't really think anything of that. So to me, to get too, too in my face about uh, sustainable foraging, when we have all those other practices as a species, is, uh, is just a moot point. There's, just, it's, there's so much bigger issues to discuss than did I pick the chaga at the top of the tree and the bottom of the tree. <laughs> it's funny what people get their knickers in a twist over, isn't it? Yeah. And how blind they are to the fact that they live in a wild space. You know, I live in a city. It's in a wild space. It's in an mm. ecosystem. It is. People don't think of that, but that's how it works. And, uh, yeah. And, and the impact and the general day-to-day -day impact that they have on the environment, people are pretty blind to, which is another reason that I think encouraging people to get outside and explore what's in their back alley, like Paul, to Paul's point, if they find out, holy crap, I just saw someone spray right where we pick our dandelions every spring, that makes you not feel happy. And then mm. you, maybe you'll do something about it. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll say something, maybe, you know, our policy will change so that we're not, you know, doing, making stupid moves, uh, in, in our environment just to suit aesthetics or something shallow. And maybe we'll have a broader perspective on how we interact with the environment. So that's my take on that. So yeah, we'll encourage people to forage more. Yeah. They'll, they'll have a bigger impact on wild things. Cool. Great. Because then when there's a permit to go out to a forestry management area, that's going to wipe out 5,000 hectares of forest. Maybe someone will stand up and say, whoa, 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 maybe not. Mm. And that's one thing I find the show does very well is it shows how we are all a part of the environment and it's not, Hey, there's nature and there's me. Yeah. There's nature and there's the plants and there's the animals and there's man or human. Well, I'm glad that comes across. Oh yeah. No, it does. It yeah. does. And it's a... It's like, um, and I know I go mentioned it before Shane Mahoney, uh, back East, he's, uh, a prolific conservationist and, uh, hell of an orator. And he says, you know, I'm quite often, I'm, I'm asked about how can I square myself with the fact that I love animals and that I hunt. And he says, it's, it's not a question of there being a different set of rules for them and a different set of rules for me. The question is. I am one of them, or the fact is I am one of them and we all work together and we have to take a look at how that all comes into play. And that's, that's one of the takeaways that I see on, on wild harvest. Yeah. I'm glad that comes across. We absolutely are part of the ecosystem that you, that we live in and every decision you make every day impacts that. And if you don't want to consume a living thing, then you choose death. Like as humans to, to live we're killing a species of something mm -hmm. and I'm not very speciesist as Paul knows. It doesn't matter to me whether it's a rabbit or a deer or a bear or a fish or a plant or mm -hmm. a fruit or something like something's life is ending. And it's, you know what, to be honest in, in the shooting of the show, Les and Paul and I talk a lot more about this than gets edited into the show. Right, Paul? I we talk about it a lot. It's, it's, yeah, it's really present in every bloody episode where we're talking about interesting, like just the ethics of harvesting a tree or the ethics of harvesting a plant and, and how we approach nature and, and what we, you know, kind of how maybe what we should be doing rather than what we're doing. And so anyway, Paul, do you want to speak to that at all? Like, well, how has that been important to you? Uh, I, it, it's great to, to hear, um, that your, your take has really been what we've been desiring from a project. Uh, and, and I think one of the biggest wins and I'll, I'll, I know that when Kevin and Les and I are in the field, I mean, it's, it is organic, it's legitimate, it's unscripted. Um, it is just capturing that moment, but the, the way that the story has been told when it comes to the edit, I think really 
shows that very well. And, and I also have to add um, the the timeliness of of this with COVID. We we didn't start this knowing that COVID was going to be a, a thing, and everyone would just, was going to be dealing with it. But um, what's been one of the most satisfying things is to read some of the emails coming in from uh, people that have been watching the show and and quite a few people. And this is what shocks me. And Kevin has heard me say this a few times. We've we've got both male and female people saying, your show brought me to tears. It's about time there's something like this. I felt connected. I felt part of a bigger picture watching your show. And... Really, that that's kind of the ambition. We want people to to go outdoors and to breathe the air, and to take a moment, acknowledge where they are in, in this world, and and who we are in this world. What what we are as a species um, might be a little bit further down a rabbit hole that the show doesn't want to speak of, but we do, as Kevin was saying, when when we are together and, and we're talking about things and the connectivity of it all. Um, how plants do, you know, there's scientific proof, proof that plants do communicate to each other, that the forest looks after the forest. Um, we're, we're all tuned into to this world. And, you know, when the, the number one battle right now um, for our species is fighting algorithms and the polarization of, of uh, politics and how something like COVID instead of bringing people together seems that it's divided people in many ways. And that's, that's not really the place that we want to exist. We want to, to tell a story about togetherness and we are uh, part of a huge collective and our energies do melt and we do combine and we are small pieces in a greater sum. And, um, yeah, with all that being said, uh, again, to, to hear you say that, Travis, that, that you picked up on that from, from watching the show means a lot to, to us. And, and just one more thing is to, to Les Stroud's credit, um, he is uh, highly attentive to these concepts and knows that there's we have to dribble it into the show. We can't just hammer this and like be preachy about it. So let's let's slide those little lines in there that make people aware that this is where our head's at and without uh, making the show, you know, too, too spiritual or, or, or esoteric or a high concept. And let's try and keep it like on its feet on the ground. So I give him credit for that because we could spend a lot more time diving into this, uh, but uh, instead we do it in moderation. <laughs> You know, I think there's probably a desire out there <laughs> in moderation. Yeah. I think there is a desire, desire out there for people to, uh, to hear more of that. Maybe, maybe it's not on the wild harvest show. I mean, you got to speak to that algorithm and you got to speak to, if you want to get the message out, you want to be able to do it in a way where people will actually be watching and listening. But, uh, I wonder if, uh, wild harvest, uh, around the campfire, wild harvest outtakes mm. or just th those conversations that happen outside, I think are, are very important. And I think there is a, a desire that people want to hear about that because that whole idea of interconnectedness and, uh, the, the spirituality of all of that, the esoteric sort of concept behind all of that is something that has, uh, sort of been missing from the conversation for, for some time. And I think when I talk to other people, I do get the sense that there is a craving for that. Yeah. And that there's, you talk to, don't have to talk to many outdoorsmen with a lot of experience that to, to find that, um, that spirituality seep in again, that discussion, spirituality that would have existed a few, you know, a few hundred years ago by default in any, you know, any group of people that lived connected to the outside and connected to the world in a very different way. Um, yeah, we certainly went through a disconnect period, but I don't, I don't disagree with you. There's an appetite for it. I would say we dive a little deeper into it and from the wild, as far as challenging kind of some of the ideas, uh, like challenging lots of ideas, everything from like the militarization of hunting with camouflage and, and night vision and semi-automatic weapons and drones, yeah, mm. to, um, you know, to, to those kinds of things, those kinds of concepts about our connectedness to nature and that, uh, and the oneness of, of the whole thing. So, uh, we do, we do dabble it with it in that series. Cause we have, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, just 
a kind of a broader mandate, I suppose. And so it, it, we do, it does get found there, but I don't disagree with you. There's probably an entire series that needs to be built just around that idea. Well, is there any, I'm looking at the time here and, uh, conscious of the listeners want to make sure that, uh, on their drive in, they're able to get most of the, the conversation. Uh, is there anything else that we should be touching on? Oh, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Kevin, can you think of anything? Uh, no, no, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it squarely in your, in your lap, Travis, as far as what you want to cover. Okay. And uh, if people want to watch your show, uh, how, how can they do that? I'll dive into that. Um, Wild Harvest is currently airing on 400 plus PBS stations in the United States. Uh, so it's being aired by American public television all over the place, uh, on PBS. And, um, so it's there, it's about to air, um, on National Geographic Pacific, uh, Asia Pacific. Uh, so it'll be in that market for a while. And these are fairly long licensing terms. So, uh, the show will get looped by, you know, different stations at different times. So the timing isn't exactly, you know, a specific thing that's hard to pin down for folks, but they'll have to look it up in their, in their region. Um, from the wild is on, uh, Vimeo on demand and always has been. So that's, uh, eat most easily found at our website, uh, from the wild.ca has all the links to all the seasons. Uh, we've got seven of those being, uh, kind of up and ready to watch now. And am I missing anything, Paul? Uh, YouTube. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. just, they're on the, uh, survivor man, less child survivor man, I think is the YouTube channel. Am I right, Paul? About, yeah. and then there's a playlist, uh, there with the wild, wild harvest being aired in or aired or, uh, available online where we're not geo-blocked, uh, which is a term that means that if you're being aired, for example, in the United States, we can't air it on YouTube in the United States. So that's available in Canada on YouTube and other countries. Excellent. Well, Paul, Kevin, thank you very much for being on the silver core podcast. I, I really enjoyed speaking with the two of you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, me too. It was a pleasure. Mm-hmm.